and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week we pick a topic to discuss and this week we'll be talking about one that I feel like never gets old, mergers and acquisitions or abbreviated M&A. Over the previous years and during lockdown, we saw a flurry of activity and a surge in the number of startup consolidators popping up, as well as a lot of private equity deals. But this last year, it has felt like a bit more of a slowdown. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about what has been driving the business of this market, how the landscape for acquirers of IFA businesses has changed, if at all, and what we can expect to see. I'm Sonia Raj, Deputy News Editor at FT Advisor, and joining me today are Louise Jeffries, Managing Director at Gunner & Co, and Paul Morrish, Founder at Succession Wealth. Hi both, thank you for joining me today. So Paul, maybe Morning, I'll begin Sonia. with you. And just to ask you about, you know, is the landscape for sellers changing? And if so, why? Um, hi, Sonia, firstly. Um, it's nice to be with you. Um, yeah, I think it is changing, but quite subtly. Um, but actually, if you look at what's driving the changes, it's probably no real surprise. You know, so higher interest rates are making the cost of debt higher mm-hmm. for uh, private equity backed acquirers, particularly. Uh, some acquirers have struggled to uh, integrate their acquisitions uh, or, or indeed have chosen not to and are struggling therefore to drive exponential growth in their EBITDA or their profit line. Uh, so they're forcing price changes to try and drive their revenue up because the markets have been quite flat. And so different things I think are conspiring in some ways to make it a very different world than the one we all got used to in the kind of twenty. 15 to 20 period, for example, where markets were generally rising. There was quite a lot of competition for most firms, actually, whether they're small, medium or large. Um, And the cost of debt was low. So actually, relatively speaking, nothing really needed to change in that period. It became a bit of a grab of volume according to what someone was really looking for. But the last, I'd say, probably any post Liz Trust moment, probably, Mm -hmm. I think things have changed quite a lot, and and, but often in quite subtle ways that I suspect we'll talk about a bit later. Well, what what about you, Louise? Have you kind of seen sort of a similar kind of change? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Paul makes a really good point. From our experience, I think we can see changes depending on segment or, or sort of type of business coming to sell. We're certainly seeing the smaller end of the market, finding it a lot harder to find perhaps the the dream acquirer that they might have been able to in those years where everyone was buying anything. Uh, you know, to, 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 to Paul's point, it's harder to make a turn on these businesses. It's harder to make a return on investment. And so those smaller businesses are getting left behind, I think. And, and you know, when we're talking about single, single advisor firms who have built this legacy that they've watched all of their um their colleagues selling their businesses and now perhaps they're coming into a market where they find it's not as easy as they had expected or had seen in the past. And um, what what do you think is kind of the the reason for that? I mean, what the primary reason would it would it what would it come down to? It's predominantly, from what I understand from the buy side market, is scale. You know, a some of the bigger players who have got significant amounts of backing. So you can put succession in that. So I'm not talking for succession, but if I talk about a big buyer that's got significant backing, when you look at a small business, and by that I would say probably less than 100 million under management and certainly less than 50 million under management, those buyers are saying this deal doesn't move the needle. And the time it takes to do a deal, the effort it takes, the costs involved, 
all of those, you know, are taking finite resources. And when you're looking at a business that, let's say, has got 60 million under management or 250 million under management, the amount of resource to complete that deal is fairly similar. And yet the the opportunity and the output from that bigger business is much higher. Would you, would you say that's the same um, kind of from your point of view, Paul? Yeah, I think Louise say? makes good points there. I think the other probably two other things in there, different buyers have got different um, pictures they're trying to paint. So if you have bought a set of firms that broadly speaking you're then wanting or needing the, uh, a, the seller to retire from, clearly you've got a client bank you've got to work out how to service. So if you haven't also got a bank of uh, advisors that are looking for capacity filling or they're in the wrong location or they're not going to fit with the client, you've got a different set of problems there. And to some extent, I think only when you... It's a bit like putting all the pieces of a puzzle down on the page and say, well, actually, I can't find some of the pieces and I can't finish the picture. And sometimes, I think, uh, and thankfully, we've never really bought in the sub-100 million pound market, so I, I observe it more than experience it. But... Um, those people who are then looking at the picture they can't complete the puzzle with have got a real issue because they really don't know how to service the clients they paid for. So they're stopping to buy in that market because they don't mm -hmm. want to make the problem worse. Uh, my other observation is um, it really doesn't matter whether you, if you get a client complaint or the FCA look at you for DB transfers or something like that, it doesn't matter whether you're a one-man band firm or a 500 million pound firm because it can still cost you exactly the same amount of money but one of those can just wipe out the value of a smaller deal much mm -hmm. more easily obviously than you can absorb it inside a bigger deal so i think there are lots of different things conspiring there but some of it's about the maturity now relatively speaking of the acquirer market as well and people looking at what they've got in their hand and trying to work out how to play their cards because obviously in the end most of the acquirer market's also trying to think how do i sell properly as well yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it seems like um, that would a lot of those things would kind of make sense, especially from for a smaller firm. You can see that how detrimental something like that would be on their business and on the value of their business. It kind of brings me on to kind of, um, I guess, valuation and, and where we're at with that at the moment. I mean, are we is our firms being overvalued, undervalued? Where, where are we at with that? Um, I think you're right. If I go first, Louise. Don't want to be rude. <laughs> I, I think um, I think there are two or three drivers. One is a build off the last point we just said, which is people are paying much more uh, inconsistently. So in in the not many years ago past, you'd have probably seen a similar recurring revenue or EBITDA multiple applied to a relatively small firm as to some extent you would have done to a larger firm. Clearly, for the reasons Louise has well illustrated, the cost of acquisition, the risks of it, the, the opportunity costs of going down one path and not another, uh, a bigger firm, uh, more established, uh, where you've got the team in place, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is should and will normally command a higher multiple. So I think we've seen some segregation according to the size and the nature of the firm. But I think more fundamentally, there's been quite a subtle shift, uh, which doesn't appear to have changed the headline multiple, but has really changed the way buying and selling has happened. So. Generally speaking, I think you can normally find for a good business, you'll find a three and a half to four, sometimes a bit more multiple mm -hmm. on recurring revenue, which has been where the market's been at for a long, long time. But what I think a lot of buyers have been doing is actually using the fund management revenues for in-house investment management in order to justify that price. And so... In the old days, and the old days probably not many <laughs> years ago, but in the old days, you would pay clean, let's call it four times, recurring revenue multiple, 
for the recurring revenue in the business for a pure and well-run financial planning business. Now what you're finding with obviously there's a lack of inherent market growth at the moment. There is uh, a, a challenge of getting everyone right and aligned with consumer duty. And also new business isn't as easy to come by as it was when you've got a much higher interest rate economy mm-hmm. for a client to choose where to invest their money. So growth in underlying recurring revenues isn't so easy to find. Um, but also there is definitely a suppression of the multiple that people are pre- prepared to pay for recurring revenue because they can, because there are fewer buyers, a number of buyers have come out of the market recently, a number are preparing themselves to sell, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But underneath it, there's also, I think, a subtle shift to in-house investment management from a lot of buyers. And so what people are doing is paying what appears to be still the four times recurring revenue multiple but in fact it comes with a degree of obligation which was never there before to force migrate the client into the in-house investment management solution Mm -hmm. so the buyer is buying we don't run our own money so i can sit here and almost you know just say this is what i observe really uh the buyer is effectively uh paying on a return on investment measure not on a recurring revenue measure but it's been presented to the seller as a recurring revenue measure and and really it comes with a bag load more of conditions than were true before which are really to do with you will have to put as much as you possibly can or as much as i tell you Mm -hmm. into my in-house investment management solution yeah so i guess their choice is sort of kind of getting slimmer and slimmer exactly and i think there's a real you know clearly there's a client risk in there five years down the line if that investment management solution that the seller just sold into yeah underperforms that's a poor place for a client to be i i would personally find it quite interesting that that's still allowed to be called independent yeah (laughs) that's that's a fair point um what what are your thoughts on that louise yeah i think this is a really interesting topic actually because i think it's very interesting and, and makes absolute sense paul um aligning the challenge of return on investment with the degree of sort of expected vertical integration from a transaction. I would say that um, attaining a return on investment has always been linked to or has always been modelled out against the opportunity to take more share of wallet of the client. So, i.e., we would talk, I mean, I used to talk about bites of the TER cherry, you know, going back four or five years. Um, I definitely think that there are some clear players who are very clearly uh, pitching their price point against the proportion of vertical integration or the proportion of clients going on to their in-house asset management. And there are some headline players who are putting out valuations and, and headline figures for purchase of businesses that are quite strongly outside of the market. I think in the middle ground of the acquisition market, I'm not sure how much has actually changed. I think, as I said, I think it's really interesting to think about, okay, it now costs more to do this deal. So actually, do we now need to model out a higher proportion of assumed vertical integration? But that modeling would always have been done by the large consolidators. Um, How the clients are then being brought into those centralized investment propositions, I guess, is up for debate and up for discussion today. It's not my experience of deals that we're working on at the moment that that is something that's mandated through purchase agreements or or even, frankly, through um, through 
unofficial, you know, documentation. And principally because we, you know, there's always been a theme that the FCA doesn't want shoehorning, that clients should have choice. Um, and so it's always been the case, in my experience at least, that vertical integration is a nice to have and the buyer will model out what proportion they think they may be able to get. And it tends to be in the low, you know, sort of 20, 30% of clients moving into those propositions. So I guess I'm not sure it, how much that really has changed, but it does make sense if it's harder to make that return on investment that this would be a more important element of the success of the deal. Yeah, I think there's some really interesting points that you've made there and um, the the kind of whole ideology almost of the fact that vertical integration is sort of built into the kind of the deal almost for, for a lot of firms is, is interesting. Um, I guess just kind of touching on the on the buyer's sort of point of view, um, you know, one trend we've seen over the last couple of years is private equity firms moving into the space and it's been specifically, you know, US firms that we've seen more of. Where do you think we're at with that now? I mean, are we are we at the end or are we likely to see more of it? I don't think we're at the end. I don't think in, in real terms the number of buyers has really changed. I think the level of activity and appetite and cash they've got to work with is notably different um particularly um in the kind of 200 300 400 million asset business which was generally where the real hotspot was uh people are having to pick and choose what they want to work with um i'm seeing quite a lot of deals that i never saw before that were coming out of other buyers where they thought they were going to be sold to another buyer uh, and the buyers just said i, I can't do all that i've got in the mm-hmm. hopper at the moment uh there are a number that are on pause for lots of different reasons i i actually think there's a there's another driver to that which is there are a large, large number of consolidators who are getting ready to sell themselves and they don't know perhaps where they're going to go. But, you know, at that point, you tidy yourself up. You, you don't want to add more confusion and, and integration activity. And that takes demand out of the market. But in absolute terms, I don't think the number of buyers has changed. I, I agree with you totally, Sonia. There's a number of US acquirers in there. Um, I, I think they're, 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 it feels a little bit like the mid-teens in that sense where... I don't think many of those necessarily know what they're trying to buy at the moment. So the question of do we want to buy DB transfers is still a very live one. Mm-hmm. I hear of a number of acquirers that just won't go near them anymore, uh, which is in some senses a shame for those who've written those uh, those lines of business well. But I think you can find, I mean, Louise will know better than me probably, but I think you can still find your buyer, um, but it's you probably have to wait longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably don't get so much competitive tension in the pricing and you probably also have to work out really quite clearly up front who you need to match with based on your own values and your perspective and what's important for you and the client and the staff you've got in your in your own stable. Yeah, it seems like a real change from kind of the lockdown days or, or kind of around COVID where firms have sort of almost had the upper hand because there was so so much demand for buying the likes of these smaller businesses um and now this sort of is is kind of flip on its head and and it's sad that you know those that are kind of operating in the db space successfully and doing a good job are kind of being disregarded just because of the risk that is associated um louise i mean what what are your thoughts on that from kind of the buyer's point of view I mean, I guess from a um, starting from a personal point of view, whether I have the right to have a personal agree, but I do agree with you, Sonia. You know, the the businesses that have operated in that DB space in a very compliant, very appropriate way and doing what was right for their clients that have a number of them have been sort of put through the ringer 
this is my personal opinion, uh, I think is a real shame. You know, there are a number of business owners who have really had a very tough time where they have, you know, in their mind, and I think in probably when you look under the bonnet in the FCA's mind, have been doing what was right for their clients. And I think then, as you said, you then take that to the next step where they start to say, well, you know, I've, I've done my time now, I'm, I'm ready to retire. And they come into the um, you know, they've built legacy and they come into the MA market and find that it's harder and harder to sell. Um, and I know there's been some commentary and Paul and I have talked about different ways that you can sell these businesses and, you know, the option to sell out the assets, but then you're left with, um, you know, a, a business that you have to work with the FCA in terms of how do you actually close it down. Uh, and I think that yeah, I think for those businesses, it is a shame when they have been working compliantly. Um, but on the flip side, I actually think, and we did a webinar on it last month, I think, with some of the guys from Thistle, the compliance company, that the buyer market's risk is changing a little bit on the DBTs. And I think that we are seeing an easing up of the buyer market in terms of their risk assessment of DBTs. And I think that that market is opening up. And obviously, we've seen the insurance market opening up a little bit. I think it's early days. But I think that the opportunities are starting to come back for those businesses, um, which I think is is a good thing, obviously. Yeah, definitely. And I guess once there's kind of more... Um you know, PI insurers that, that might sort of start to to offer a better rate or kind of help help these businesses, we should hopefully see mm. that picture reverse almost. Um, yeah. I guess just kind of staying with you, Louise, um, you know, to summarise almost, what, what is currently kind of driving the M&A market as we approach the end of 2023 and kind of what is it likely to look like as we move into 2024? Okay, I mean, there's lots of different factors. Actually, coming back to your point around um, the buyer market and the size and complexity of the buyer market, to Paul's point of consolidators setting them up, setting themselves up for sale, mm -hmm. I definitely think that there has been a journey since sort of just before pre-COVID when a lot of these private equity firms started to back what I tend to call startup consolidators, um, started to either back management teams or buy platform businesses as uh, platforms to then acquire from. And that added a big surge of acquirers to the market. And I think that those private equity houses, the, the, their timeframes in terms of those investments are probably coming to a degree of maturity. And I think that that segment of the market has struggled to differentiate itself. And as a result, there have been a number of players competing over the same thing. And obviously only so many of them can effectively win the deals. So I think that's where I'm expecting to see some consolidation and some buyers being bought. Um, in reality, will that make a massive difference to the supply and demand curve? As I said, they all look somewhat similar. And so you know, whether you've got three of them on a panel of buyers or two or one, the seller has a similar opportunity in the market. So I suspect that that won't make a big difference. Um, and then as I started, I think that the 
the market for those smaller subscale businesses is getting harder and harder. And I'm not sure how that's going to play out or how that's going to turn around because there's plenty of businesses of that size. And traditionally, the consolidators consolidators would have been opened by them, but they now see that they're not going to move the dial. And there would have been a number of regional independent firms that would have bought them that are put off in reality by cost of debt and and the challenge of doing deals. So I think there's a big segment of the market that may end up under... um, underrepresented from the buy side sure yeah i mean that that all kind of makes sense what what's your uh, views to add to that Paul? i think it makes great sense um I, I perhaps frame my answer if i was a seller what questions would i be asking now around what what's likely to be going on in the next six months mm-hmm. i think the first question i'd ask is uh to any buyer actually where and how are you going to sort your future out because it's a very different thing to sell as a consolidator say to a, a i don't know a fund manager mm-hmm. you know full well the journey therefore is going to be a one-way track to further fund management consolidation and enforcement of that aspect of the vertical um value chain uh similarly have you really got an idea of what and how you're going to sell because there are a lot of those consolidators that are on the market so anything which has got deferred consideration attached to it and or an element of cash as and when something momentous happens i think it's got to bring a question of doubt into a seller's mind so there's a there's i think there's a really good question there it's a it's a bit like where does the grandfather phase go? Because these consolidators are all owned by private equity generally mm-hmm. and they want to return in a reasonable period and they'll do whatever they can to get that return. And yeah. that often includes sacrificing the client along the way. So that's a smart question to be asking and I think is a much more prescient question right now. I think the other question I'd be asking is much more around um, the... Is the market ever going to get much back to where it was for me as a seller or is now the time to crystallize my position and and that position might be to just stay and you know take my own returns and do it my way potentially do as louise says some infill acquisitions regionally but if you're going to sell uh, into the consolidator or the, the the kind of a bigger owner space I, I suspect the real question you should be asking is now the time to do it and my, my own experience is that last point is probably the most usual one i come across at the moment which is it feels like things are turning. I'd rather know where I'm going and lock my deal in. It's a bit like, you know, interest rates are rising, so I'll lock my fixed rate. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah, definitely. And, um, and, and I'm going to make my decision now. So I've never had so much in exclusivity as I've got now. Um, and that's partly, I guess, because of Eva, I've got cash and it's a yeah. different world for me right now. Um, and they just leave us alone to do, to do what we want to, to make a better business out of succession. But fundamentally, people are looking for certainty. And I think they... You know, it's often the case that as you head into summer or you head towards the end of a year, people want to know where they are at the end of the calendar year or as they turn to the next year and they can then set sail. And I, I think there's that's a smart question to be asking. I, my own sense is that it's leading also to a bunch of other considerations and decisions by people, which is actually I'm quite happy doing it on my own. You know, do I really need to join this gravy train of sale? that's you know got such momentum and noise around it maybe i'll just sit tight and and do what i like doing and look at perhaps selling it to my staff because those, those options never seem to come yeah, into consideration you know and it's about the only sector i don't really hear anything about we're about employee ownership you know mm-hmm. which, if i was sat there running my own ifa right now i think i'd be thinking this might be the best thing i could do for my people yeah but I accept that that comes at a different capital value but you know ultimately we're in a profession that pays well uh does have a joy for looking after clients does generally attract really good people into it 
and might take us down a completely different path in the years to come. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is, like you said, it's a different kind of almost path because the the capital that would be available would be different. So it might not be in, it might be in the client's best interest, but then the the advisor who spent years building this business might not be better off. So I think you made some really interesting points there, especially for any advisors listening to this right now that, you know, are in that limbo phase of, do I sell now or do I wait well, for another year? Um, so, yeah, hopefully it's been kind of useful for them. Unfortunately, that is all we've got time for today. So I just want to thank you both for coming on to discuss such an important topic, um, especially one that I feel like we never hear the end of. So it's, it's a great one. Um, and thank you to everyone who's listening. Join us next week as we discuss another hot topic in the financial services industry. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.